Welcome to Free Thoughts. I'm Aaron Powell. And I'm Trevor Burris. Joining us today is Patrick Eddington. He's a research fellow in Homeland Security and Civil Liberties at the Cato Institute. From 1988 to 1996, he was a military imagery analyst at the CIA's National Photographic Interpretation Center. He's also the author of Long Strange Journey, an intelligence memoir. Welcome back to the show, Pat. Thank you, gentlemen. How'd you end up at the CIA? Well, for one thing, the Army decided that it wanted to make me a tanker rather than an intelligence officer. So that kind of motivated me to uh, to seek another pathway. Did you like – was there like a test? Did you ace the tank test? Is that the – or they just had – that's what they needed. They needed you tanks. Know, that, and and the, I, the really ironic thing about it is when they sent me to Fort Knox, which is where the armor school was back then – they they had me go through the M60A3 course. The M60A3 was was one of the Army's main battle tanks during a, a big chunk of the Cold War. The problem was the M60A3 was literally being phased out in favor of the M1 Abrams, which, of course, figured very prominently in the 1991 Desert Storm War. So they sent me to armor school to train me on an obsolete tank, um, the Army in its infinite wisdom. Mm-hmm. So I, you know, still thinking about grad school and all these other things. And then uh, one of my closest childhood friends, uh, Tim Miller, um, he was getting ready to actually head to his basic course uh, for artillery at Fort Sill. But he got a telephone call from uh, the Missouri State University campus placement office. That's where we, we both went to undergrad, in which they said the CIA recruiter was going to be on campus. And he was going to be leaving, but he said, I know somebody who probably would be. So I went over there. I met the, met the guy. He was in his mid to late 50s and, um, you know asked me a set of questions and kind of looked me up and down and said, uh, well, you know, we'll be in touch if we want you to come for, you know, follow-on testing. And they did. They they had me go up to the University of Missouri at Columbia a few months later and kind of take an initial, uh, I guess what I would call as a uh, world knowledge test, if you will. So a little bit of history, a little bit of geography, a little bit of politics. And I'm pretty sure I got every single question right on that test, which either tells you that I'm awesome or the CIA is like, in a big, big way, needing to raise the bar, <laughs> one, one of the two. But in any event, you know, there was more silence. And then a few months later, they said, we want you to come out for a physical and, uh, you know, initial polygraph and all the rest of that stuff. And, um, you know, 18, ultimately, when the process started in the summer of 1986 to the time I actually got the offer in December of, of 1987, it was about 18 months. And, uh, you know, from there, I, I went on. How did they slot you into imagery analyst was that something like did you express interest in this or did this just kind of where you ended up i i expressed strong interest um in military analysis but you know the agency had you know particular needs and what they tried to do essentially in the hr process was kind of matrix that you know with what you're interested in so when i went out for one of my last interviews it was at the place that I would ultimately wind up working for, for the first several years, uh, which is the now dearly departed National Photographic Interpretation Center, uh, which used to be located in the now demolished Building 213 in the Washington Navy Yard here in D.C. And uh, I, you know, I interviewed with the branch chief, uh, Ron Beavers. And, uh, you know, a year later, he was my actual branch chief. That was the, the branch that I actually went to. So this is this is in what was known as the uh, the Soviet um uh, the the, the um, tactical forces division, uh, which is looking at you know Soviet military structure and um, Sat- satellite or airport air, aerial photography, um, both both because um, we were still in the era of um, you know having access to U two, but also SR seventy one. I never worked SR seventy one related imagery, but U um, two was still definitely available. But most of what we worked with uh, was satellite imagery, and it was you know current generation stuff. Now it's, you know, looking back, we're talking 25 plus years. It's not exactly a state of the art anymore. Well, but maybe they're, to they're, give a sense of that state of the artness, like how does the stuff that you were looking at compare to, say, like what we can see on Google Maps right, right. now? So <clears throat> in the modern world uh, here of 2019, you have uh, a couple of companies that are kind of in the business here. Digital Globe really is kind of the biggest one. And the imagery that they put out, um, would definitely be equivalent to kind of uh, the mid-level or maybe slightly better imagery that I was looking at uh, when I was there. The the exact uh, resolution capability of that era of satellite is still technically classified, although a lot of the details 
were made available to the Russians due to the traitor William Campiles, uh, who actually gave them the manual for the KH-11 satellite. Uh, But I think the simplest way to put it is that the systems that we had then were really good. The systems that we have now, which I got a chance to actually see when I worked for Mr. Holt on the Hill, um, are kind of out of this world um, in a lot of respects. I think I'll probably have to leave it at that. But it's um, it was a lot of fun. But at the same time, you know, back in the day when I was doing it – you know, satellite or air breather is what we have. And of course, now in, in this, you know, post 9-11 world, uh, it is literally the era of the drone. And and of course, earlier this year at Cato, I hosted a book forum with um, Andrew Holland, uh, uh, Michelle, who has written a book about the Gorgon Stair program, uh, which involves essentially uh, wide area motion imagery. And, and so this really does get you very close to the Tom Cruise Minority Report uh, kind of world in, in terms of the ability to kind of rewind the imagery in, in real time and figure out, well, you know, the IED went off here. Uh, we can trace it back to this house. That's where we need to send the team. So, you know, in a, in a foreign intelligence context, whammy or wide area motion imagery could potentially be a war winning or a war changing and outcome changing kind of technology. The last thing in the world I want to see is that technology imported here domestically, right? Because then you get that kind of stuff put into the hands of police and uh, we all know where that goes, right? Out of curiosity, how do they come up with these fantastic names for things like Gorgon Stare? <laughs> is, is it like – is it just someone comes up with it or is there a process for this? I mean that that one is particularly like demonic almost. <laughs> I mean like, – so operational names, you know, like Operation Desert Storm or whatever, if I recall correctly, that kind of stuff uh, oftentimes winds up getting generated by by computers. But uh, in the case of Gorgon Stare, I think some of the folks that were involved in the program actually kind of came up with it. Um, yeah, I mean, that kind of technology is really very scary. And when you begin to to kind of layer that together with everything else that we know, right, biometrics now is just red hot in terms of of uh, public concern about that. And then you take the whole issue of electronic surveillance, the the ability to use anything from NSA's capabilities all the way down to these uh, to these bloody IMSI catchers, right? You know the the cell site simulators, the uh, the Harris boxes, and so on and so forth. You can create a panopticon, and then oftentimes I think we don't even step back and think about technology that on on the one hand is like super convenient, right? You take something like Easy Pass, right? That is major league tracking technology at the end of the day. So you are literally, vol- well, not exactly voluntarily, but you are putting what amounts to a tracking device on your car when you do that because you want to be able to get into a faster lane. And so you're going to pay for that. Both you're going to pay for that cash-wise, but you're also paying for it privacy-wise. There seems that there's – when those technologies are rolled out by domestic law enforcement that – we always end up losing civil libertarians always end up losing this fight uh, when we say you know well, well this could be abused and then they say so we have a could be question and then they say there are bad guys right now that we can catch and there seems to be sort of disproportional weight on this and we always end up losing we're like you should not be allowed to deploy this domestically i i think that happens <clears throat> far more than any of us would like but i will say that what i have seen with respect to these uh, local revolts over facial recognition is very encouraging. You know, our, our colleague Matthew Feeney, I think, has um, uh, some very well thought out concerns about, you know, outright bans and things of that nature. I, I feel okay about bans right now because I think what we need is a hard stop to really let people kind of catch up with this and and have a real robust public discussion about is this really a technology that we really absolutely positively need to have deployed? I would I would even make the same argument ultimately about this whole encryption debate, right? Because we have had now for basically a 25-year crusade on the part of the Department of Justice to try to breach encryption. You know, it started with the Clipper chip back in the, in the Clinton era, and we managed to beat that back. But we've now had, you know, two consecutive FBI directors basically banging away on this. First Comey, now Ray. Uh, if you guys don't give us this, people are going to die. Well, people are dying anyway, right? 
And if you allow encryption to be breached, and I think this is where the cops are not thinking this through. If they can breach encryption, so can the drug cartels at the end of the day. And who are the drug cartels going to go after? They're going to go after the cops and their families, right? And that's why I think they're not really taking the step back that's necessary to kind of think through what it is they're asking for. Um, and, and as a society, kind of writ large, libertarians don't fall into this category, I don't think. But society at large, you know, what is the message that they convey to the cops? Get the bad guy, get the bad guy, get the bad guy, get the bad guy. And so that kind of fear-based mentality, you know, is what the cops and the and the cops unions especially use to kind of fuel all this stuff. Um, and it's a tough battle. But at the end of the day, you know, I, we, we are having more victories recently. And, and I think it's incumbent upon us who are in this community to keep hammering away on, on all these issues. Because if, if we were to step back from it, then it would just be a steamroll, right? I mean, I, and I'm not trying to like – say that Cato has some kind of outsized influence in this respect because we're hardly alone in our opposition to this stuff, whether it's ACLU or Electronic Frontier Foundation or some of our other friends who work in this space. But I, I do think that those of us who work in this space, as long as we keep after it, we do make it much more difficult for vastly worse things to happen. Well, it is a time where it seems to a, in a good way that people are aware of that the, the, the speed of technology has changed so much and they're aware of what everyone's afraid of whether or not Alexa is listening to them and yep. all of these things. Whereas in the past, maybe technology didn't move quite as quickly yeah. and some things just rolled out like the militarization of police just yes. sort of rolled out without anyone noticing it. And yep. I think we're having conversations before or almost contemporaneous. But nevertheless, I continually, like whenever I go to the airport now, it's like every time I go to the airport, for example, I see a new piece of of shiny security. So the yeah. last one was literally a facial recognition system to get on the plane um, at Dulles. And I was like, well, this is a little bit terrifying and who knows what will come next. That's why when my book <clears throat> research project is over and I I don't have to do any more field research trips. There is no way I'm getting a real compliant ID. I will not be flying again for the foreseeable future. That's just a fact. I'm not going to do it. So I want to back to the the CIA stuff to eventually get into your your experiences leaving the CIA. So you're doing you're you're getting imagery of Soviet stuff, vehicles, tanks, troops, mm -hmm. things like that. Um, what are you? Doing with them, yeah. Like you get this picture, you sit down. What happens? Next? Right. So you have an entire system essentially that is designed from start to finish to give the American intelligence community the ability to track every major military formation, every military base, every port, every airfield, so that you get as complete a picture of as possible, not just of what we call their table of organization or equipment. But also essentially what they do from an exercise standpoint and, and you're working with colleagues at the National Security Agency and elsewhere to, to collect imagery, signals intelligence, all these things and, and human intelligence, of course, to, to build essentially a picture of, in that case back then, Soviet military capabilities, which of course was a major Pentagon publication of the same title. And, and you're keeping track of these facilities. So just to use, you know, my experience as an example, when I came on board, I was assigned to work what was then known as the Transcaucasus Military District, which encompasses today Azerbaijan, Armenia, basically that area. Uh, it was kind of a backwater military district for the Soviets, uh, back then. Most of their units would have been what we then called category three, which meant they had to have, uh, a massive infusion of reservists in order to even be mobilized and actually usable in a combat sense. Category 3 divisions almost always had hand-me-down equipment, uh, older obsolete equipment, etc. So that was kind of a, a training ground for me in a lot of respects. The more modern Soviet equipment, of course, uh, what we would call the Category 1 stuff, where they had, again, back in the day, the more modern tanks back then, T-64s, T-72s, T-80s coming down the line not long after that. Uh, would have been in the more uh, forward, you know, Soviet military districts, the Moscow military district and, and districts forward. And, of course, the group of Soviet forces in Germany. So it was all about keeping track of what they were doing and looking for signs of a potential World War III, a potential, you know, move through the full to gap. I mean, that was always the uh, the concern that, that the Reds would roll through that particular way. 
So you're, you're keeping track of the installations. You're keeping track of the units. You're monitoring construction activity that takes place because that can be an indicator potentially of a rollover to a new tank or a new infantry fighting vehicle. It could mean that um, a unit was going from brigade size all the way up to division size. They were going to expand the actual uh, unit presence in the particular area. So it was all about um, um, kind of indications and warning, if you will. But they uh, knew we were they we they knew we were watching them, and I assume they were watching us. So uh, I know in in on D Day they created a fake army mm-hmm. with that was inflatable to make they believe in Potemkin villages and things like this. Uh, do you do you, were you trying to spot? Did you see like them creating fake military drills? To, or do we do that stuff too? So this is an area where I have to be a little bit cautious in terms of of what I discuss. But looking for evidence of denial and deception uh, is a core skill that you develop uh, as a military imagery analyst. It's one of these things that, and there are specific examples. You know, that you'll see when you go through a training course on this kind of stuff. And there are also things that you just kind of develop when you're looking at it on the job. This is also where having access to additional forms of intelligence. You know, I worked in the imagery world. That was that was my basic, you know, tool. But having signals intelligence from NSA, having human intelligence, usually from emigres or defectors uh, from the Soviet Union, giving you a sense of what was in a particular place. And also a sense of how they actually operated, you know, what their operational tempo was like, how many times they exercised. So when you put all that stuff together, um, that along with some other very, very sensitive intelligence can help you to kind of figure out whether or not, you know, they might be up to something. Um, there's pretty good evidence that, for example, with the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan in 1979 – there's pretty good evidence, uh, and this is pretty much public. I'm not giving you, I'm not giving away the game here, that there were a lot of signs that were actually missed. Um, and that, that often happens because people are just not, you know, being properly attuned to what it is they're looking at. They're not, they're not necessarily conceptualizing that this unit that's basically what we would call a dirtbag unit, a category three unit, could actually be flushed out quickly and actually sent into combat somewhere. But that was the Soviet way of war. That was their way of approaching the entire question of, of how you actually, um, you know, ramp up to make a move against a particular country. So the data that you're generating, one thing I was curious when I was reading your book, is that the way that it gets used, because I'm thinking of the way that data was used or misused in the run-up to the Iraq war. Like, So you're, you generate these reports. Are they – being used to inform decisions that haven't yet been made or does the data get used more to kind of justify decisions that have already been made? Like you're just lending weight to people's pet decisions. Yeah. So I would say that for the for the vast majority of my career, again, because I worked in the imagery world, which is a very, no pun intended, black and white world, the tank or the tank battalion is either there or it is not, Right. Or they've they've put a bunch of inflatable tanks down there and utilizing certain techniques and capabilities. You can figure out those are inflatable tanks, not the real thing. Um, can we buy an inflatable? Like, can you just get one of those? How do you get an inflatable <laughs> it's like a tank? Ta- so castle. There are probably manufacturers out there. Yeah, um, they, they they probably will only go through like GSA contracting practices. So unless you've got you know some kind of so that uh, would just like really freak out the American intelligence if there was just suddenly a tank in my backyard. <laughs> well, I'm just thinking, I might get like, a knock on the door from someone doing domestic surveillance. Get one to take to the pool. Yeah, or that too. Yeah. Well, <laughs> what, what would get them going is if you, for example, went into let's say rural Virginia somewhere where somebody's got a farm and then you started basically building firing ranges and you started building um, athletic fields for, you know, troop training. And then suddenly a bunch of these tanks show up, you know, <laughs> yeah, then you would get some attention. You might I get think. some attention. Okay. Yeah, well, do, yeah. duly noted if I ever want to play a, play a prank. Um, but on Aaron's question, so sometimes, so you say you're, you're, your field was a little bit more black and white, as you said, yeah, but, but. I, you know, the biggest problem um, that I personally encountered was policymakers not taking us seriously? And of course, you know, in the memoir, uh, Long Strange Journey, I, I talk about this run up to the 1990 uh, Persian Gulf War, right? Where we are clearly seeing Saddam Hussein move his entire Republican Guard, eight divisions, his most elite troops, 
um, his equivalent of of uh, of the Nazi Waffen SS, if you will, right down to the border with Kuwait. And given the criticality of the Republican Guard to Saddam Hussein's survival, the fact that he would basically take his palace guard and his most elite troops and move them all the way down to Kuwait when he already had the entire Iraqi Third Army Corps down there, which included several armored and mechanized divisions, that alone should have been like a five Red Star cluster for George Herbert Walker Bush, Brent Scowcroft and the rest of them at the at the top of the national security pyramid that this was not a bluff. This was not a shakedown. But President Bush chose to listen to the late Hosni Mubarak of Egypt and the late King Hussein of Jordan, who said, it's a shakedown. He's bluffing, referring to Saddam. He's not going to do it, yada, yada. They were, of course, completely wrong. And, and when I went back, you know, after the war and I, and I spent a lot of time kind of reconstructing how it all went down, it became clear to me that indications of Iraqi preparations for doing exactly what they did had been missed. And I talk about that in some detail in the book. And that, that's a, always a frustration. And of course, in the lead up to the Iraq war of 2003, what you had was an extraordinary situation where People within the Bush 43 administration who badly wanted to go to war with Iraq literally created a parallel intelligence structure within the Pentagon, completely outside of normal channels, cherry-picked the most alarming and, in most cases, least verified or totally unverified information. And Secretary Powell wound up using a lot of that garbage in his UN presentation. Uh, And we all know what happened after that. So... That that whole incident with Fife and that completely uh, Doug Fife um, uh, from from that era, you know, is a is a radical example essentially of of the misuse of intelligence. But what you see more often than not, this was the case with Pearl Harbor. Uh, it was the case uh, with Chinese intervention in in Korea in 1950. It was the case with the Tet Offensive. You. It missed and and people not wanting to to know the truth. I mean, one of my one of my favorite documentaries ever, which which you can't get, but I have a bootleg copy of, uh, is the nineteen eighty two uh, CBS Reports production entitled uh, "The Uncounted Enemy of Vietnam Deception," and it was all about how General Westmoreland, our commander in, in Vietnam at the time basically lied about the number of Viet Cong that we we were actually facing in the field and how one of my predecessors at the CIA, Sam Adams, uh, a descendant of the famous Adams family, uh, presidential family, uh, one of the greatest analysts, one of the greatest intelligence officers in American history, uh, no question about it, figured out that there were a lot more Viet Cong there than what Westmoreland and, and his folks were basically claiming. And he spent all of 1967 um, basically trying to get the national intelligence estimate on on South Vietnam to reflect that change in numbers. The problem was the president in April of 1967, President Johnson, had had Westmoreland come back from Saigon and address a joint session of Congress to say we were winning. Um, and that's exactly why when Westmoreland was presented with with the revised figures, he just he just blew a stack. So long story short. Adams lost the fight. Um, the the NIE 14.3 was published in the fall, and it basically soft-pedaled um, the actual number of Viet Cong we were facing. The Tet Offensive happens, and of course, the mask is ripped away. And after that, Adams spent the next several years basically trying to find a way to kind of get things corrected internally. Really couldn't do it. Uh, he got drummed out of the agency, basically, because of all the, the hell that he raised. Is there a hubris there about... Uh, maybe even uniquely American or a type of American hubris, because you also mentioned Korea, and that was an absolute debacle in moving that far north and then having the Chinese show up. Um, but it seems like we do this a lot, like like more than we should, because we might just think, hey, you know, no one can beat us. We can, and then political incentives, and you know, presidents saying we're winning, and and officers wanting to keep their jobs, and all this stuff. It just seems we, that happens to us a lot. I don't think it's a uniquely Anglo-American phenomenon. You know, I think the Russians thought that Afghanistan would be easier than it was, and they didn't. They didn't. They didn't pay attention to the British experience, and they certainly didn't pay attention to the experience of Alexander the Great two thousand, you know, two thousand years earlier than that. So I, I don't think it's a uniquely um, an American thing. In fact, I think about you know the Japanese 
uh, Imperial Japanese government, you know, in the lead up to Pearl Harbor and after, uh, and, and the Japanese Navy in that period, you know, they, they got what they later referred to as victory disease because, you know, they took us by surprise at Pearl Harbor and then they wound up, you know, taking the Philippines. They took, uh, uh, the Dutch East Indies, uh, what was the Dutch East Indies back then. And they were just able to march seemingly, you know, invincibly across the Pacific. But our intelligence uh, services, particularly uh, Navy intelligence uh, and the Navy cryptographic community at Pearl Harbor, learned the right lessons from those disasters. And that's why we wound up basically blunting their attack on on Australia in, in May of 1942. And then, of course, won the pivotal battle of Midway. I haven't seen the current movie. I've heard it's not great. It's uh, I, I've just based on the on the actual trailers. I think it's horrible. Mm-hmm. I think the 1976 version starring Charlton Heston uh, is actually, from what I can tell, much better. Um, and the 76 version of the movie, though, is is very, very historically accurate overall. They did a really good job with it. But that was, for me at least, the pivotal battle of World War II, and that's a battle where intelligence was everything. Well, maybe yeah. the maybe just, just the hubris of war. I, I don't think there. I think is. great powers just generally suffer from that, right? I mean, we we have this notion of American exceptionalism, which I think has been kind of a pox and poison in a lot of ways. It, it's gotten us into situations that we had no business being in. Vietnam, of course, being the the biggest, but hardly the only one. Um, and I think we as Americans. And I think this may be an American trait. We're not terribly self-reflective, so. right, as a society. Uh, and and I, I do think in many respects that that is kind of an American thing, unfortunately. I think it's worse now, too, because uh, no one holds a mirror up to us enough yeah. Yeah. Uh, in terms of comparing. Yeah. If you're you know, a mid-level power in Europe – you can you can look around and see what's happening to other mid-level powers, but the Soviet Union kind of held a mirror up to us occasionally. Yeah. Uh, now it doesn't seem like there's anyone around to do that. What was Gulf War syndrome? Yeah, so it, it was interesting. You know, we we go through Desert Shield and Desert Storm, and and I worked, I pretty much worked the war from just about start to finish. The only thing that I really missed was the ground war, and I I rotated off of our team. On uh, on February twenty second or twenty third of nineteen ninety one, just because I was burned out, I I looked at I don't know twenty five thousand, thirty thousand satellite images during that period. That was that was my ballpark estimate, and I was just I was frustrated generally because I felt like the way essentially that our our collection priorities were being handled it was not was not intelligent, and I also felt that we were trying to churn out things too quickly and so on. So anyway. Rotated off of that, but I, I wound up going to, to Georgetown to get my master's, you know, later on that year. And so I was kind of out of circulation for about a year. But during that, that period, um, we began to kind of see in the press these reports about, you know, sick desert storm veterans and it began to, to become, you know, much more of a thing. And then by 1994, when my wife, who was also CIA at the time, rotated up to the Senate Banking Committee for uh, a rotational assignment on a leadership uh, training program she was part of. I, that's when I got clued in about just how many veterans were were calling in sick and and how many um, incidents of chemical agent detections they were reporting to the banking committee. And and for those who are wondering why is the Senate Banking Committee looking into this, uh, Donald Regal of Michigan was the Senate uh, uh, chairman at the time. And a lot of veterans in Michigan uh, were calling into his office complaining about the symptoms. And so he started looking at whether or not U.S. dual-use uh, chemical-related exports to Iraq during the 1980s might have contributed to Saddam's chemical and biological ballistic missile capabilities and that that might ultimately have a linkage uh, to what happened to the veterans. So that's how the banking committee got into it. And they did their initial staff-level report and published that at the end of September 1993. And when my wife got the rotational assignment in early 1994, she brought home a copy of the report and she said to me, read this, I think we got gassed, meaning we, meaning American troops in the Gulf. And I read it and it was about a 50-page thing and it was anecdotal, but there were a lot of anecdotes in it and they were very compelling. And because of my military background, I I could understand the significance of what these guys were saying. And, and some of the equipment they were using for detections was kind of notoriously – Unreliable, and some of the other stuff was known to be very reliable. And I began to wonder, you know, is there a there there? And that triggered memories from the war about uh, signals intelligence that I had seen 
indicating that chemical agents had been detected or even the chemical attacks. And we're talking about national security agency cuts here. Um, that's what we're talking about. And so I began to wonder, you know, was the official line about all this uh, a lie? You know, was it BS? Did something really happen here? And I began the process of uh, clandestinely of reassembling all the intelligence I could from that particular period and, and anything else that had come out, you know, in that in that post period. And as I was doing that, my wife was assisting with the banking committee investigation, you know, trying to get a handle on uh, on how sick the veterans were and the symptoms they were suffering from. And kind of at its core, um, most GWS symptoms kind of center around essentially neurological and neuromuscular type debilitations. And so if you actually look at the cohort of Desert Storm era veterans, they're actually twice as – and this is from Department of Veterans Affairs, a study that was – a large study that was published in 2008. They're actually twice as likely to develop brain cancer as their non-deployed cohorts. So that that's kind of significant. And then you also see increased rates of ALS or Lou Gehrig's syndrome uh, among Desert Storm veterans as well. One of the problems with trying to disentangle everything is that these men and women were exposed to lots of stuff. Um, a lot of um, pesticides were used at the camps where they were at. Most of these were organophosphate pesticides. And for those of you who are wondering what does that mean, think of it as a diluted form of nerve gas <laughs> because that organophosphate compounds basically make up kind of the core of certain chemical nerve agents, sarin among them. So they were exposed to that. And then they passed out these things called pyridostigmine bromide tablets um, as, quote, anti-nerve gas pills. The problem is pyridostigmine bromide is normally only given to patients with a specific neurological condition called myasthenia gravis, which is where the brain actually manufactures more of acetylcholinesterase than you actually need to function properly. So people wind up having you know muscle spasms, their arms and legs do all kinds of crazy things. They cannot literally control uh, their body, their muscles. And what pyrosigmine bromide does in folks with myasthenia gravis is it brings that acetylcholinesterase down to a normal level. Well, if you take a normally functioned human being and you give them pyrosigmine bromide, you are taking that acetylcholinesterase. That's exactly right. So they were told to take this on the rig, like like, or or only when indicators were when the balloon went up, so to speak. When the war started, they told people to start taking tablets. So. You know, maybe as many as a third of the 750,000 or so or 700,000 who are deployed wound up taking this stuff. So you you throw in the organophosphate pesticides, you throw in the PB, and then you throw in the fact that the alarms were going off like crazy once the air war got underway, which told me that you had a massive downwind hazard because we were bombing all the suspected Iraqi chemical weapons sites, right? All the depots, not just the manufacturing plants but actual ammunition depots where we believe chemical weapons uh, had been forward deployed. So these veterans, you know, have this, this constellation of symptoms. There has never been at that point in 19, in the early 1990s had not been anything approaching the kind of research needed to understand what kind of effect non-lethal or sub-lethal chemical agent exposure does to the human body. Um, the VA was basically telling people that it was all in their head. Well, it was, it was in their head, all right, but it was it was real. You know, you were, you were talking about some some measurable effects. So, my concern in all of this wasn't just about an intelligence fraud, right? That that weapons had been used, or at least weapons had been detected, the agent had been detected, that people had been exposed. I was concerned about the real world cost for these veterans not being able to get the treatment or the compensation that they were due because their exposures were basically being written off as psychosomatic, right? So in that respect, it was kind of an Agent Orange replay, you know, from, from the Vietnam era. And that was a big motivator for me. I was a Desert Storm era veteran, right? I mean, that was, that was my cohort. And if I had been in different circumstances, I could very easily have been deployed. And I could have been one of those sick men or women. So when you see that, um, and when you come essentially from a citizen soldier family like I do, uh, these these things are very personal. You know, they they mean something to you. So I was I was highly motivated, you know, throughout the entire episode to try to see what I could do basically to help get it out. And I also thought that the agency had an obligation 
uh, to correct the record if they got it wrong about weapons being in theater and people being exposed. So what what were the next steps that you took? You you found this information. You think you've established this story. Where do you go from there? Yeah. So when I I started the investigation in February of ninety four, and by right around July fourth of ninety four, I had hundreds of documents. Um, all the way up to the TSSCI level on my machine at work. And I put together about a 55 or so page PowerPoint presentation where I would basically walk you through the genesis of all of this and how it all happened. Well, of course, my investigation was completely unauthorized. My boss had no idea I was doing this, but I knew nobody else was. Nobody else in government, you know, certainly in the intelligence community, was looking at this. So, you know, I, you know, finally sprung it on him, totally freaked out. I mean, he was like, how much time have you spent on this? You know, yada, 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 the whole nine yards. And, you know, I said, look, it hasn't interfered with my day job, which it hadn't. And my day job, by the way, my day job was helping figure out, uh, helping the, the Pentagon figure out who we would bomb in the next war. I worked on this thing called the Central Targeting Support Staff. So I was the guy, I was the imagery guy on the team, and my job was to help them pick targets for the countries we would bomb next if it came down to it. But there's so many. I mean, yeah. how do you even choose? <laughs> like, yeah. we have so many weapons. It's Iran, like, it's Iran like, was Iran. What I would think Iran would be the was at the top one. of the yeah. list, yeah. Um, among others. Um, so yeah, I, I made it clear to him. So it wasn't pressing. Yeah, I guess you're saying your day job wasn't like pressing. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, there were some things that came up. You know, Haiti came up in mm. 1994. And the idea that we needed, you know, sophisticated special technical operations to, you know, deal with Haiti, I thought was just absolutely hysterical. You know, a, a, a country with the highest poverty rate probably in the entire Western Hemisphere. Uh, but, yeah, I mean, I made it clear to my boss, look, none of this is interfering with my day job. And I have a case here. And you really need to take this seriously because this is a political thing. And. If DOD is lying about what happened, and I'm convinced that they are, of course they were, as we subsequently learned, I don't want the agency to go down with it. So I was trying to be the good guy, team player, yada, yada, yada. Well, you know, he blew me off, uh, and, and they didn't actually turn it over to the, to the director of intelligence all source team that they should have. Were they, you able to give your presentation? I did. Okay. I walked him through it, uh, at the initial level, and, and, uh, you know, he was sufficiently alarmed by what I had that, you know, he he took it out initially, and uh, but they didn't really take it seriously. They didn't put me in front of the people who had actually written the reports that said none of it happened, right? And when we finally got to that phase, which was in early 1995, um, I had much more data. And, of course, the banking committee had already done two reports and a hearing by that point. So there was just a lot more data. But at the end of the day, you know, my wife and I were these two people basically coming in saying, sorry, y'all, you got it wrong. You tanked it. Well, this is this is how and it, it was politically hot. Even oh, yeah. I remember totally. It was, like, it was absolutely so. And so this is how the whistleblower journey generally begins. You find something terrible going on inside the organization. It's like, gee, people really ought to do something about this. Try to do the right thing, and then you start going up the management chain, and you begin to realize, yeah, they do actually kind of know. They 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 just don't want to deal with it. You know, they don't want to have to go back and address it. I mean, they put their names on reports that said that none of this happened. So in in retrospect, I think what happened was inevitable, right? Um, but we had to do it. We had to check the box. We had to go through that because if we were going to go public, and I was certain we would have to do that ultimately, I didn't want anybody to turn around and say, well, they didn't follow the chain. You know, they didn't go through procedures and protocols and yada, yada, yada. So we checked all those boxes so we could then say the system is useless now can we have a real discussion about the problem so what does going public mean like who do you who's the the public that you initially talk to um so when it became clear by april of 1995 that the agency was going to try to sweep this under the rug i basically came up with a plan that would allow me to write the first book um and give us the opportunity to kind of get it out there uh, from a media standpoint. And then hopefully uh, it would trigger some follow-on congressional investigations. Because once the Democrats lost control of the Senate after the 1994 elections uh, and, and Regal was not going to be returning to Congress anyway, 
that particular investigation, the banking committee investigation, was concluded. It wouldn't be until um, former Congressman Chris Shays of Connecticut took over the House Oversight Committee's uh, National Security Subcommittee that we would actually find a committee willing to listen. Um, but once once we made the decision we were going to have to go public, uh, we went to the Presidential Advisory Committee on Gulf War Illnesses. Dr. Jonathan Tucker, the staffer there, listened to everything we had to say, looked at our data, and agreed with us, agreed that there was a there there. He was promptly fired um, because, again, they – they by were, the president, was he, was uh, by, he by the by the by the leadership of the board? Okay, by the by the chairman of the presidential uh, uh, task force on Gulf War veterans' illnesses. So, when we saw that that they were going to do that to Jonathan, and, and we knew that that we were going to leave the agency, um, it was just clear to me that we had to have a vehicle. And initially, uh, trying to get the book out, and also the the legal battle we waged over what were known as the Gulf Link documents. One of the things that Regal did manage to kind of help spark was a DOD declassification effort on this stuff, which also ultimately roped in the CIA. And they began to post documents on Gulflink. And after a while, they began to realize, wow, this really does make us look pretty bad. There is actually data here that might need follow-up. And they turned around and reclassified all that stuff, or they attempted to reclassify it. So my publisher made it known that he was going to repost all of that stuff, no matter what the agency did. Um and they even tried to block publication of my first book. CIA literally tried to prevent the entire book from coming out. So I had to retain counsel. Um, the same counsel, by the way, uh, who is representing the Ukraine gate whistleblower. Um, and, and we wound up pulling the trigger on it ultimately. Uh, the book didn't come out until, you know, a good nine months after we went public. But, but that wasn't about like there was was there anything classified in the book? Was it, well, they made claims about it. But what I did is I drew directly off of Gulflink documents that they had re, already, that, okay, that, that, they, that they had reclassified because my my basic point was the executive order on classification one three five two six explicitly says you can't do this. So great, let's have this out in court. You guys, you guys want to go up against us on this on this question. Two weeks out from a presidential election, basically hosing veterans, this is the fight you want to have. Let's do this. That's why they folded in a week because they, they knew it would be a political disaster if they went forward with it. This this thought process like of becoming a whistleblower, um, it seems like – I mean to some extent, you as a whistleblower, what you're doing is you're substituting your judgment for – a bunch of other people's like other people have said this thing that we're doing, we're either going to keep doing it or we're not going to tell people about it or like in our considered judgment, this is what's going to happen. And you as an individual or in this case, you and your wife are saying, no, like my judgment is is better, stronger, more worthy than yours and I'm going to do what you've told me not to do. Kind of like being Batman. <laughs> and, <laughs> You're Batman, Pat. <laughs> and we can think about like we can we can draw the cases where it's like it's very clear like that you know one side is right and one side is wrong. But is there uh, like any sense of like hesitation where it's like look if if all of these people are thinking this is something that we should keep hidden um, or are are making the following decisions like who am I as this lone analyst to say. No, I know better than like the entire leadership structure of the CIA and Department of Defense. It's pretty easy to know right versus wrong when you see it. And when you know that people are lying about events that took place and when you know that they are deliberately concealing information that shows waste, fraud, abuse, criminal conduct, et cetera, um, then, then for me and my wife, certainly it was very easy because we took an oath to preserve, protect and defend the Constitution of the United States. And there's no question that, you know, the affinity that I feel for with my fellow veterans was an overwhelming motivator for me um, because I know from U.S. history how many times veterans wind up getting hosed, right? How many times they've uh, they have been abandoned by their country, uh, used by their country and thrown away and so on and so forth. So, I, I, you know, earlier this year, in, in October this year, I had um, journalist Tom Muller in, and we did an event on his new book, Crisis of Conscience, Whistleblowing in an Age of Fraud, where he takes a very good look, essentially, at the very thing that you're talking about, which is kind of the mindset of a person who decides to make this kind of decision. And he draws upon both government and private sector and even some nonprofit examples. And I think, you know, one of the things that, that all of us who do this have in common is that we are very interdirected people. 
and and we have a very clear sense of of, of right and wrong. Uh, and that's why people like, you know, Chris Pyle, the army officer who went public about army surveillance in, in 1971. He was, 1971 was very much the year of the whistleblower in many respects because it starts with Pyle and then you have the Citizens Commission to investigate the FBI breaking into the, to the uh, media of Pennsylvania FBI, uh, resident agency, liberating all the documents. This is how we ultimately find out about COINTELPRO, right? Those people are saints to me because here you had eight eight civilians with no military experience, no intelligence experience, no law enforcement experience, who over the course of about a four-month period plan and execute a break-in to liberate documents. They're committing a felony, okay? They're breaking into an FBI office, committing a felony in order to expose this mass felonious unconstitutional behavior that they strongly suspected the FBI had been engaged in, not just against them, but against everybody else. Marvelous book by Betty Metzger uh, called The Burglary. And of course, it's also the documentary 1971, if you've only got about an hour and 15 minutes to spare. But uh, and then, of course, you get Ellsberg, um, you know, who for folks like me, you know, is 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 an icon. Um, but there, there of course have been others and I've, I've written about them and I've gotten to know them. You know, the, uh, the NSA five is, is, uh, Tom Muller refers to them. The folks that were involved in the trailblazer and thin thread debacle of the, of the 2000s era that I've written about extensively and that I'm litigating, uh, on and for, in fact, on, uh, if, if you happen to listen to this podcast before, uh, before, uh, 10 a.m. on uh, November the 25th, 2019, I'm going to be in federal court with my attorneys, uh, in Eddington versus DODIG. Uh, dealing with the whole trailblazer thin thread FOIA lawsuit. It's rare to get a hearing uh, on a FOIA case. So we'll see if Trevor McFadden just wants to slap us around or whether he's actually going to slap NSA around. But Where does it, Snowden fit into this uh, whistle? This, this, because he listed a bunch of them. But yeah, I, 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 I put him in exactly the same category as Ellsberg. Um, and, and I think... <clears throat> You know, what Congress just did this week with the, with the continuing resolution was, of course, tack on a three-month extension to this USA Freedom Act slash Patriot Act authority abomination. Uh, yeah, Snowden, while they're trying to impeach the president, they decided to give him all these, yeah, all yeah, these powers yeah, and just yeah, spy on more people. Yeah, it, it, yeah. Democrats have messaging problems and other problems, <laughs> yes. you know, uh, on this issue. But um, – Snowden exposed crimes against the Constitution. He exposed mass surveillance. This is why I just don't have patience for people who attack him. I, I, I'll freely admit I don't have patience for people who go after him because he looked at how Tom Drake and others who have gone through channels to try to do whistleblowing have been treated. Remember that Drake was part of this team at NSA that, that developed this thin thread system uh, that had it been deployed prior to 9-11 almost certainly would have stopped the attacks. Um, and and Drake was accused of essentially leaking to the Baltimore Sun about this internal uh, meltdown at NSA over the Trailblazer program, which is a thin thread rival uh, that never produced a single piece of intelligence. Um, and they went after him. And that was the, one of the most outrageous um, uh, examples of prosecutorial misconduct I have seen in my life. Five Espionage Act counts against this man. Evidence was actually fabricated, literally fabricated in the case. And I was disappointed. I mean, the judges at the end called the, the prosecution out for it. I, they should have been sanctioned in my judgment. Um, but, but Snowden saw what happened to Drake in the NSA five. And, and, and then he saw what happened to Chelsea Manning, of course. And he drew the correct conclusion that he could not trust the internal system. Now somebody's going to say, but wait a minute. In the Ukraine gate episode, it worked. The only reason it has worked in the Ukraine gate episode, in my opinion, is because what that whistleblower, largely with secondhand information, re- reported to the ICIG happened to coincide perfectly with the Democratic House majority's agenda to get rid of Donald Trump. Yeah. Because if you go onto congress.gov and you search the words Adam Schiff and whistleblower and you go back throughout the, the, the entire course of Schiff's career, he has offered exactly one piece of legislation having to do with the whistleblower. And that is the Ukraine great whistleblower. So when we, when we talk about all these, these individuals that I've, I've described, they do share this, this commonality of a sense of inner direction. And so it's clear that, and I haven't had a chance to go through Snowden's memoir yet, but Snowden clearly understood that he was seeing unconstitutional surveillance. 
he clearly understood that he could not trust existing channels to take care of it. So he essentially did what what Ellsberg did. Um, and in my judgment, the country is the better for it. And I, I look forward to the day when Ed can come back here. Uh, all charges against him should be dismissed with prejudice. Um, and I, I hope I hope to live to see that happen. So you just went through and listed the names of a lot of whistleblowers. And so now as we're, we're sitting here and they like, as we speak, impeachment hearings are going on on the Hill. Um, I did ask, like, does the identity of the whistleblower matter? Republicans want it to matter because they want to talk about anything but the actual, yeah, the the actual evidence. And I and I thought, quite frankly, um, the testimony we got last night from Laura Cooper of the Pentagon uh, was by far more damaging than anything that Gordon Sondland had to say, because she walked us through the fact that it was much more widely known and much earlier known by the Ukrainians that the aid was being held up. But more important, what came out of that hearing is that in holding that aid up, the president was clearly in violation of the Budget and Impoundment Control Act. And and under that statute, it's it's very clear from my understanding that if you're going to try to hold up funds, you've got to notify Congress. Yeah, 45 days. Then they have 45 days to approve it or not. Yeah. But I guess let me let me ask my question slightly differently. Like, <clears throat> should a whistleblower no. make their identity known? No. And should we be – is there any reason for being slightly more skeptical of – an anonymous whistleblower than no. one who's because the the just to use the DODIG as an example, um, their whistleblower complaint system is designed to handle anonymous stuff. Every IG is supposed to be able to do that. And when you look at, and I'll just go back to the Trailblazer and Thin Thread example, when the DODIG did their investigation of those two programs, um, and this is one of the reports that's at the heart of the litigation that I've discussed. They explicitly talk about the fact that people uh, are given anonymity because of fear of retaliation, and several people that provided information to the DODIG in that case explicitly stated they were afraid of retaliation. And so you see this, you know, all through the document. So if you were to go to the DO, uh, DOJIG website or any other website around there, and you look at the audit reports that they do that are based on whistleblower complaints, you will never see the name of the person. And that's not just because of Privacy Act considerations. That's an obvious, easy, legal one. But the identity of whistleblowers ultimately has to be protected in order to guarantee that that people feel comfortable coming forward. I'm of the opinion, frankly, based on what I've seen of the IG system, particularly the, the intelligence community IG system, that we would be better off abolishing those IGs and letting whistleblowers come directly to GAO, um, yeah. Congress's you know arm, because you're talking about a power asymmetry, and with most of these IGs, most of them, the people who serve on those investigative staffs are rotationals. They come from elsewhere within the given agency or department, so it creates an inherent conflict of interest. I'd have less concerns. My concerns wouldn't be eliminated, but I would have less in the way of concern if I knew that every IG around there was nothing but dedicated professionals who did nothing but that, who didn't rotate back into you know somewhere else in the agency. But even in this case of the Ukraine gate whistleblower, we see the pressure that was applied on the ICIG to basically not go forward with this to the committees as he was required to do. And it wasn't until Schiff found out about this complaint being out there and the committee basically kind of pulling the ICIG's chain saying, uh, we don't think so, that the ball finally got rolling. But Republicans are desperate to go after uh, this particular individual to, to, to change the conversation essentially away from uh, from the underlying facts that Trevor indicated. And it, it's completely contrary to how whistleblower complaints are supposed to be handled in the federal government. So uh, we left the, the story. So on Gulf War syndrome. So yeah. what happened? You left the CIA. You published your book. Yeah. Where where do we sit now in terms of the government's, you know, how do we get there? What does the VA say about Gulf War syndrome now? So the, the VA really even to this day continues to essentially deny, you know, any kind of real connection there. But because of action by Congress to, to assist Desert Storm veterans, it's a little bit easier for them, you know, to, to get compensation. Um, the research has come 
some distance, you know, in the intervening years. I kind of rattled off earlier some of the etiologies that and, and some of the actual disease process that we know about. But we still have a long way to go, I think. Um, and that was America's shortest war, you know, in, in Lord knows how long. You know, maybe the Mexican War would, would be close in terms of, of short, relatively short duration. And you only had 700,000 people deployed. So they, they never developed the kind of constituency that, uh, World War II veterans had, right? Or even Vietnam veterans, you know, still maintain to a certain degree. Or now are Iraq and Afghanistan veterans. You know, they, they have built, you know, through IAVA and some other organizations, they have kind of built up their own, uh, uh, political capacity, if you will, to kind of lobby. Desert Storm veterans, you know, are, are a very, very, uh, niche group, a very small group. And, they are definitely in danger of essentially coming, becoming America's forgotten veterans. And I certainly uh, don't want to see that happen. So the most important final question, though, is what is in Area 51? <laughs> this is this has been a hot topic recently, and I know you know, Pat. So, so <laughs> Well, if I did know, I would probably have to kill you. I, well, I feel like it. they evacuated. They got to have emptied it out. I mean, if there was anything there, they just use it for like – Storing the American cheese supply and then like laugh at all the people who go and try and raid it. That would be true, right? That may be where the aliens from Independence Day really are, though. But um, yeah, I mean, I know that certainly in Nevada, uh, the Air Force has had um, facilities where a lot of advanced aircraft and a lot of advanced technology were tested. And of course, it was in Nevada where you had the the F one seventeens, the Nighthawks, and all the rest of that. But Sadly, I, I don't think that there's like a hidden warp drive at, at Area 51, which is very sad. But Okay, then let me ask an actual final <laughs> question. Someone listening to this right now who is in a situation like you found yourself in, what advice do you have to a potential whistleblower? So if you don't want to contact me at sanitizer at protonmail.ch um, – or you don't want to reach me at Signal. Um, my advice, uh, first and foremost, is to get a Proton Mail account. Um, and secondly, if you're going to do a reach out, there are three organizations that I recommend. First and foremost is the Government Accountability Project. Uh, the second is Project on Government Oversight, and the third is Exposed Facts uh, and the Whisper Project that that they run. You want to get um, in a place where you can have. And if you're in the intelligence community or you're dealing with classified matter, you want to be able to have an unclassified conversation about what it is that's going on. Um, in terms of being inside your organization, if you've already started to kind of raise a ruckus about this, you're probably already a target. Uh, if you haven't really raised a ruckus about this yet, reach out to one of those three organizations that I just discussed uh, to begin with because you want to get really good, solid advice about – documenting what it is that you're seeing. You want to make sure that what you're seeing is, in fact, an illegal act um, if you believe that you're witnessing waste, fraud, abuse, criminal conduct, etc. So getting that kind of advice right up front uh, is extremely important. If you are married, uh, if your spouse is not on board, you have to really think about this. You, you, And if you have children, uh, especially young children, you're going to have to take that into account too. You know, my wife and I were very lucky in that <clears throat> we were young, relatively speaking. Uh, we didn't have any kids. And so that made the calculus for what we were going to do much easier. I just look at kind of the Ukraine gate situation, right? Where we clearly had dozens of people who knew that U.S. Ukraine policy was at best on a dual track. <laughs> Uh, and to use Ambassador Taylor's characterization, one of those was an irregular track. And those folks essentially, um, you know, the, the most that we know right now is that some of them on the NSC went to the NSC lawyers. And that's really kind of where it ended. It took somebody else in the intelligence community who had knowledge of these events, uh, even if it was secondhand. It was detailed secondhand. It took that particular person to decide this is off the rails, somebody needs to be notified about this. You have to think about these decisions uh, very carefully and very soberly. I knew what I was getting into because I had I'd studied what had happened to previous whistleblowers, particularly Sam Adams, uh, Ellsberg, you know, some of the others. So I knew what I was getting into. Um, think about it. But, you know, that's, that's an open offer I make. It's sanitizer at protonmail.ch. 
If you want to talk about it, uh, if you want some you know personal advice, I'm happy to give it. Thank you for listening. If you enjoy Free Thoughts, you can find our Free Thoughts discussion group on Facebook or on Reddit at r slash Podcast. You can follow us on Twitter at freethoughtspod. As always, please rate and subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Free Thoughts is produced by Tess Terrible and Landry Ayers. To learn more, visit us on the web at www.libertarianism.org.